And welcome, everyone, as we begin today a new series, the title of which, Why You Can Trust the Bible, and today and seven more weeks, so eight weeks total, we'll be going through that, and I'll share with you what is uh, what that entails in just a bit. But there are notes being passed around. We'll be looking at those in just a moment. Let me remind you of a few things that are coming up. This evening, we resume our community groups. Those are our home groups. They meet uh, in homes at uh, 6 o'clock and for six-week blocks, and then we have a period of time off from those. So if uh, you don't know what group you're assigned to, then check with the information table. They'll take your name down, and we'll make sure at least by this afternoon you know where you're supposed to go for tonight's community groups. Tomorrow, ladies... uh, continues the book study in the book Made for More by Hannah Anderson. And you'll be looking at chapters 3 and 4. The ladies have already gone over chapters 1 and 2. And uh, tomorrow at 10 a.m. here or at 7 p.m. here, either one that's convenient for you, uh, you can come to for the uh, Made for More book study. Those books are available in our resource center. They're $8, and they're right out this back door and across the hall is where the resource center is, is located. And then uh, this Wednesday, we continue our uh, midweek programs. We didn't meet last week because of the Easter holiday, but we resume a midweek program this Wednesday at 7. We have ministries for all ages. And then Saturday, ladies, from 12 to 3, this Saturday from 12 to 3, is an open house uh, drop-in format um, baby shower for Sarah Fight. BJ and Sarah are expecting their first. And you had an insert in your program for that that tells you the couple of places where she's uh, registered for that. All right, today we begin the eight-week series, Why You Can Trust the Bible. And if you look at the notes that you were given, there's a table of contents there. And you see the titles of each of the, of the lessons. And the very first one that we're going to consider today, the title is, He is There and He is Not Silent. And that is a, a title stolen from Francis Schaeffer, who I mentioned in our first hour. In fact, he has a a book uh, called The God Who Is There, but then he has another called He Is There and He Is Not Silent. So today we're going to look at the fact that God, the God who is, has spoken. And that's the first step in uh, the reasons why you can trust the Bible, is that the Bible that we have has been spoken by God. It has come to us from God. And then we're going to see the other seven lessons that you see on the table of contents as well. So if you look at page one and lesson one, he is there and he is not silent. And I say at the top of page one, in our day, feeling is believing. I sometimes refer to the sovereignty of the emotions. That we live in a day when when feeling and emotions are sovereign. That is... Whatever I feel cannot be questioned. Whatever I feel is outside the bounds of examination and evaluation. So if I say I feel a particular way, there can be no judgment made about that, we think. Because who's to judge feelings? Feelings just are. They are just, and and, and because we think they just are, then therefore they enjoy this sovereign status that can't be That can't be questioned and, in fact, is authoritative. So I can say I feel a particular way. In fact, our opinions 
in our day and age are often formed by what we feel. And so we say things like, I feel that, fill in the blank. Well, I would urge you, and I hope as you'll see today and in the weeks ahead, I would urge you to lose the I feel that idea when you're expressing an opinion. Because opinions are not to be based on feeling, they're to be based on truth. And truth is true whether we feel a particular way or not. Truth is true uh, whether I enjoy it, whether I want it, whether I sing hallelujah about it, whether it makes me upset. Truth is, truth is objective, truth is sovereign, but feelings are not. But we live in a day in which they are. We live in an Oprah-ized culture. We live, live in a Dr. Phil culture. And so if you're accustomed to getting your views and forming your views the same way that the people on TV do, then this will be different for you as we go through this. Because scripturally, it is not feelings that are sovereign, but rather it is, it is truth that is sovereign. So people say, I feel that. Or if someone comes to you and says, you make me feel this way. How do you defend how do you defend against that? How can you defend yourself against what someone says you did? Uh, I have had over the years people who have come out of a church service and will say, I really feel bad. You made me feel bad. Well, it's not my objective to make anybody feel bad, honest. It's not. I, I would love it. I would love it. If every time we all came out of here, we were all just dancing around and high-fiving and we all felt great. I would love that. But truth does not allow that. Truth does not always allow me to feel good about the truth that I've heard. And so if we're going to be committed to truth, we can't at the same time be committed to feeling good. If the Bible is true and the Bible says that I'm a sinner and you're a sinner, then when we talk about that sin, we're not necessarily going to feel good about it. So in our day, top of page one, feeling is believing. Thomas Huxley, the biologist friend of Charles Darwin, wrote in 1890, way back then, he visualized the day when, quote, faith would be separated from fact and faith would go on triumphantly forever. So faith, what you believe to be true, and especially if what you believe to be true is subjectively based on your feelings, then you can believe that to be true whether or not it comports with reality, whether or not it comports with the facts or not. And so he was prescient when he, he said predicted that. Now, of course, he and his friends, his atheist friends, must have considered such faith a joke since it then would be up to each individual to choose whatever, quote, faith was right for him or her. As long as no one asked whether a belief was true, then there could be as many different faiths as there are people in the world. So when you're in a, a culture that has adopted this subjective, feeling-oriented approach to opinion, toward views that people hold, then everybody can hold whatever view they want, quite regardless as to whether or not it comports with the facts and whether or not it is, it is true. In my first job that I had in the computer field in the mid-1980s, 
The first job I had was at a, a place called Detroit Ball Bearing. And they had a computer department, and I worked in their computer department, my first job. And my boss, Bob, uh, was curious about me. He was curious about me because early on he found out that I was a religious kid. So I've got this religious kid working for me, and he was just curious about what made this religious kid tick. And so he would come and ask me questions often about what I believed. And often he would scoff at what I believed. And one, in one of those conversations, Bob said to me, he said, you know, my view of how the world came into existence and how we came to worship the God we call the Christian God is that uh, at one time each of the planets had its own God. And there was a war among the planets, which meant a war among the gods. And the one we call God won. So I'm sitting there, I'm 23, and I'm listening to my boss spout off this nonsense. And I want to say to him, Bob, that's nonsense. But I also, I'm starting my career. So I'm going through my mind as he's laying this out. What, what do you say? And, and this is what I said to him. I said, we know that could have happened. And he was surprised, like you're surprised, <laughs> that I would say that could have happened. And he says, really, you, you think that could have happened? I said, well, I mean, theoretically, anything could happen <laughs> if you just make it up. I go, the, the question is, Bob, on what basis did you come up with that? From where did that come? Is there any credible source that you can cite that says there was a war among the gods of the planets? And I said to him, I said, and if not, then since there are six billion people in the world, then we can have six billion different explanations as to how we got here. If we all just get to make it up. And that stuck with me for all of these years. Because Bob did that, and I've encountered people doing it over and over and over again. Feeling is believing. I feel that, I think that, based upon no particular foundation. And in the second paragraph, we say Huxley's day is here. Listen to the talk shows, read the editorials, and get caught up on the best-selling books on religion and philosophy, and you'll be struck by the startling realization that the spirituality of our day has been divorced from facts. One can believe whatever he likes, no matter how contradictory or absurd. Every point of view, since it arises from one's own feelings, is just as valid as another. So as an example of that, that some of you have heard me give, but I remember in 1989, 1989 uh, when Clarence Thomas, now on the Supreme Court, was nominated to the Supreme Court by uh, Bush 41, George H.W. Bush, Bush the Elder. And he nominated Clarence Thomas. And many of you know that when one is nominated to the federal bench uh, and the Supreme Court as well, as part of the federal bench, that those uh, nominations have to be confirmed by the Senate. 
And so Clarence Thomas had to, as all Supreme Court nominees have to, appear before uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee for them to consider his appointment. Things were going fairly well until uh, the weekend came and the senators were to vote that following Monday. But some news came in from a woman named Anita Hill who claimed that she had worked for Clarence Thomas on two occasions and that he had sexually harassed her. And she had very sordid claims about things that he said and, and did And she was brought before the cameras in the Judiciary Committee. And I can remember it was over the weekend that the Judiciary Committee met over the weekend, which is highly unusual. But they held this over the weekend because it was that explosive and that important. And so she said these things. And it was just, uh, if you remember, if you were around at that time, then it was uh, very big news. And after she had given her testimony, Clarence Thomas came back. And I can still remember him sitting at the table and before the cameras and with the microphone, and he was livid. He was livid. And he made this uh, statement uh, that what has happened here is a, quote, high-tech lynching. Well, that, that scared the senators because our country has a history of actual lynchings of black men. And he said, what you guys have done is a high-tech version of that. His combative response to that meant that he ended up being confirmed narrowly, but he was confirmed, and he is on the Supreme Court. Now, I tell you that story because I heard both sides of that. I heard her say he said and did these awful things, and him saying, I absolutely did not say nor do those awful things. And when that was all over, I don't know who's telling the truth. But here's the curious thing about it. After it was over... Microphones are put in front of the faces of the senators on the Judiciary Committee, and they're asked, who do you think is telling the truth? And more than one senator said, I think they're both telling the truth. Now, I don't know to this day who was telling the truth. Here's the one thing I know. They're not both telling the truth. But we live in a day in which contradictory assertions can be held as equally valid. And if the laws of logic hold at all, then the law of non-contradiction is one of those. A cannot be at the same time and in the same relationship non-A. And so we live in that day, though. Now, third paragraph. Back in the 19th century, Alexis de Tocqueville, a French commentator, came to America and even then observed that for some Americans, the goal was to, quote, seek by themselves and in themselves for the only reason for things. So each man is narrowly shut up in himself and from that basis makes the pretension to judge the world. And it was true in the 19th century, and so how much more today? Therefore, whatever a person feels is the truth becomes the truth for him or her. How many times have you all heard that? I've got, what have you heard? I've got my truth and you've got, you've got your truth, right? But today, almost no one asks whether a belief is true. The question is whether or not it's meaningful to me. So we have a blizzard of conflicting claims, and millions of people have no desire to sort the true from the false, the facts from the fiction. We've gone from the belief that everyone has a right to his own opinion to the absurd notion that every opinion is equally, quote, right. Now, you all see that? And so that is the shift, and the sometimes subtle shift, from pluralism to relativism. Pluralism, I would maintain, is a good thing. 
Pluralism is the idea that we live in a pluralistic society. We have many views, and people are entitled to free speech and the Constitution and the First Amendment. People have the right, the legal right, to spout their view. So that's pluralism. So I have the right to spout my view that your view is nonsense. Or my view about whatever and your view about whatever. Now that's pluralism. But pluralism is not to be confused with relativism. Relativism is that truth is relative. And that that shift means not only then does everyone have the right to speak his or her own opinion, but relativism says every opinion is equally right. And that is, of course, not true. So that last sentence says spirituality becomes a private matter. Beliefs are accepted or rejected to suit one's fancy. But when the Bible, which is rooted in the soil of history and logic, is either rejected or reinterpreted to fit any belief, everyone is on his own to guess at the answer for ultimate questions. Now, when the Bible, which is rooted in the soil of history and logic, we're going to see that in the weeks ahead. We're going to see some of the history contained in the Bible. In our first hour, we started this morning, if you were with us, we started a series uh, going through the biblical worldview that we receive in the opening chapters of Scripture, the opening chapters of the first book of the Bible in Genesis. And in that series, we're going to see together that the Bible provides, yes, history, but it also provides a view of history, the way we're to see the purpose for history. But the Bible provides both. It provides history. It actually provides Historical people and historical places and events that can be tested, that can be researched. And so it is couched in the soil of history. And our God being the author of the laws of logic, it's a logical, it's a logical book as, as well. Now, I highlight that. The Bible being rooted in historical events and places and persons for this reason. That that is a major difference between the Bible as the foundational book of Christianity and other so-called holy books. Take the Koran, for instance. The Koran is written by one person, Muhammad. And it is Muhammad pontificating on the way the world works. Now, any person can write a book and say, this is who God is, and this is what God said to me, and this is the way the world works. But there is no external validation of that. It is all based upon who is Muhammad and do you believe Muhammad. And yet the Bible is not constructed that way. The Bible is actually rooted in history. And so the Bible has external ways to look at the the events, the persons, whether or not they existed or not. And we're going to see in subsequent lessons that archaeology... And history, indeed, always point to the truthfulness of the Bible. But that's because the Bible is rooted in, in history. I mean, take, for instance, the, the central historical claim in the Bible. And that is that Jesus died in history. He actually died. This is not some allegory. It's not spiritually. He physically came to earth and he died. And he was physically raised. He was bodily raised from the grave. That's a historical claim. 
That either happened or it didn't. And when you look at, for example, 1 Corinthians 15 in your Bible, 1 Corinthians 15, which is called the resurrection chapter, 58 verses, all about the resurrection, Christ's resurrection and then our future resurrection. But in that, in that passage, Paul who wrote it says, he recounts the people to whom Christ showed himself alive. Now, why does he bother to do this? Why does he bother to list the people that Christ showed himself to? Why doesn't he just say, look, Jesus rose, deal with it. But he says, here's, the, here's, here's proof that Jesus rose. He showed himself to people. And he showed himself to the twelve, and he showed himself to, to me. But then he says, and I believe it's verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 15, and he showed himself to up to 500 brothers at one time. And he adds this line, most of whom are still alive. Now why the most of whom are still alive? Well, he could just say he showed himself to 500 people, but he says they're still around. Which means you could, you could ask. So the Bible is rooted in history. And history that is not myth, but claims to have actually happened. And if those events and those people actually existed, then there will be often external confirmation of that. So when the Bible, which is last paragraph there, is rooted in soil and the soil of history and logic, is either rejected or reinterpreted fit any belief, everyone's on his own to guess at the answer for ultimate questions. Since there's no umpire to judge various belief systems, the game of life is played with every participant creating his own rules. Every participant creating his own rules. So how, how do the rules of life get created? From where do you have a source that tells you what life is about, and how the game of life, to use that phrase, is supposed to be played out. What are the rules by which we are to operate, and how do you know? Well, we live in an age where everybody's got his own opinion. But, of course, some opinions get codified. Some opinions become law. So I just want to stop here for a moment and have you consider how that happens. How is it that some of these opinions rise to the level that they become imposed upon other people. That you have to do them because it's the law. And the reason I bring that up is, is this. Haven't you heard, like I have many times over the years, this accusation against you as a Christian who, for example, wants to see abortion outlawed? Because the Bible teaches truth about human, human beings and about human life. And so you want to see the taking of life eliminated. You want to see the taking of life at least reduced. And so you might be in favor of a policy that says that. But the response to you will be, who are you to cram your morality? Have you ever heard that? So I've had these debates. And if there's no foundation, then it's just all up for grabs. And, you know, we, we get these laws, which I'll get to in a minute. But, we, you know, we got some. But, but who are you to cram your morality? 
And my response to that and my suggested response that you should use is, who do you have to be in America? Who do you have to be in America to say, I believe, and I believe X, and I believe X on this basis. And therefore, because I believe X, that that babies are made in the image of God and that they are therefore, their life is sacred. Because I believe that, I therefore believe it should be protected. And my question is, who do you have to be in order to say that? Well, you're, you're imposing your morality, your version of morality. And then here's the second response that you should use. That every law is someone's morality crammed down somebody else's throat. Every law is that. Every law is cramming somebody's morality down somebody else's throat. Now, here's the deal. I don't love red octagonal signs on the street. Somebody goes and says, I got to stop. I mean, really, who are you to cram? Why, why do you go making rules that I got to stop at certain times and certain places? Well, it's because if you don't, uh, you know, a kid might run out in front and get killed. Okay, and that's based on your version of morality, isn't it? I mean, let's just be absurd for a moment. What's wrong with kids being killed? Now, we, we chuckle, but isn't that what abortion's about? But you don't think kids being killed by cars is a good idea. I happen to agree with you. And therefore, we've got a law that says you have to slow down and you've got to stop. Now, let me take it a little further. If you were to say, we should have a stop sign at the abortion clinic, a stop sign that says you can't do this, This should be outlawed. If we say that, here's one of the other responses you'll get. Who are you to tell me what I can do with my own body? And I again encourage you to go to the stop sign illustration and say, you know, they've got these stop signs everywhere based on somebody's idea of morality that it's not a good thing if children get hit by cars or people, anybody gets hit by cars. That's based on somebody's view of the sacredness of life and we ought to try to preserve it and therefore let's slow down and let's stop sometimes and let's have speed bumps and, and all of that. So based on that morality, you're cramming that down my throat and, and other people's throat. And But what if I don't agree with that? What if I just blow through the stop sign? Then what happens? Well, you hopefully you'll get pulled over. All right, so I get pulled over. And I get pulled over, and I want to use your logic. Your logic is, who are you to tell me what I can do with my own body? So when this guy comes to the window, and he says, did you see the red sign? And I go, yeah, but I don't believe in red signs because that's somebody's morality being crammed down my throat. I don't believe in that. And who are you and these other bozos to cram your morality down my throat? And then he's got his gun drawn at that point. <laughs> and then and then I say, but, you know, okay, fine. You know, power makes right, I guess, right? Might makes right. So I guess I just got to go along because you guys want to cram your morality. So tell me, what am I supposed to do next time I see one of these signs? And he'll say, you're to take your foot off the accelerator and put it on the brake and apply the brake. And then I will say, 
Who are you to tell me what I can do with my own body? Right? Because you're telling me, you're telling me what I got to do. You're forcing me to do this based on somebody's view of morality. Now, guys and gals, you can do that with everything. Every law is somebody's version of morality imposed on others. So I'm encouraging you not to be cowed by this idea that somehow the rules that come from the Bible are somehow foreign, that somehow these rules are an imposition, whereas everybody else's rules are not an imposition. There is no such thing. Laws by their very nature are an imposition on those who are subject to them. All right. So with that, if we were to restore some semblance of normalcy to America so that there was some consensus about what is right and what is wrong, there would have to be some basis for that. At one time, we had such a basis. At one time, we had that consensus. That consensus no longer exists. But if we had it, it would necessitate page one, what I say on page one, the necessity of revelation. Now, revelation, I don't mean the book of revelation in your Bible. The last book in your Bible is called revelation. But I mean the the idea of revelation, which means this. If you care to jot it down, it means to make known. To make known. That's what to reveal means, to make known. Revelation. So we have the necessity of God making known. God making known. God revealing what's good, what's evil, what's right, what's wrong. That's what I'm saying. There's the necessity of God making that known to us. And it's necessary, I say, for the world in general. If God either does not exist or is fundamentally unknowable, then life is meaningless. There is no answer to the deepest questions of life and our longings for significance. In the realm of ethics, that is what's right and wrong, Dostoevsky was correct when he said, quote, if God does not exist, everything is permitted. And let me just pause and say, uh, guys and gals, if there's not a revival in America with the rejection of the notion that there is such a thing as absolute truth and that there's a source of absolute truth, then you ain't seen nothing yet. If God does not exist, and I would add, if this God has not spoken, then everything is permitted. If God has not spoken, if we're on our own in this cosmic speck in a vast, purposeless universe, then we must do the best we can with the cosmos as we find it. In a world where there's no existence beyond the grave and everything will ultimately be destroyed, we have to agree with the atheist Bertrand Russell that in such a world everything is meaningless. The scales of justice will never be balanced and our desire for significance will have to be squelched. As Woody Allen put it, we have no spiritual center. We are adrift, alone in the cosmos. Now, what we're getting at there in that statement is this, that everybody has to have, here's a 90-cent 90, 90 term for you, everybody has to have an epistemology. And that's a fancy term that simply means, how do you know what you know? Epistemology means, how do you know what you know? And everybody's got to grapple. Everybody's got to grapple with how you know what you claim to know. 
Now, I've got a way that I know what I claim to know. That I believe that I believe there is the God who made the world, and I believe this God has spoken. And so how do I know because God has spoken? And so my epistemology, how I know, comes from Scripture. Now, people don't have to agree with that, of course. But what they do have to do is they have to justify how it is they know what they know. And they have to do that in every realm, including ethics, what's right and what's wrong. So, you know, we chuckled when I talked about, so tell me what's wrong with, you know, cars running into children on streets. Well, because that would kill a child. Okay? Then how do you know it's a bad thing for children to be killed? So I'm asking the person to do their epistemology here. How do you know? On what basis do you know? Don't be an idiot. Well, I mean, we just all know. Don't we? We just all know. Well, maybe. Maybe. Unless the year is 1934. And you live in Germany. And the child is Jewish. Now do we all know? We all just know, right? All right, so I'm with you. Let's all do everything we can do to protect children in Downriver, Michigan in 2015. All right, you're on. Agreed. But, but what, about, what about those Jewish children? Hey, tell me about that. Why was that wrong? How do you know it was wrong? And I saw a debate and heard a debate with my own eyes and ears between Alan Keyes. Alan Keyes uh, ran for president a few years ago. He's an African-American conservative. Uh, and he was debating um, Alan Dershowitz. You all know who Alan Dershowitz is Harvard-educated attorney, part of the dream team in the OJ trial, very articulate, but he's also an atheist. And so they were debating, does morality require God? And Alan Dershowitz was arguing in the affirmative, yes, it does require God. And if you don't have God, anything's permitted. And he finally got to the issue of the Holocaust. Well, here's the interesting thing. Alan Dershowitz is Jewish. And Alan Dershowitz had lost family members in the Holocaust. And yet the best that Harvard-educated Alan Dershowitz could do was to say the Holocaust was wrong because, and I'm quoting, it violated conventional norms. That is, it was unconventional. Well, okay, so if I can get 51% of the people to agree that we need a new convention, that we need a new way of doing things, do you see the problem for Alan Dershowitz? He does not have the basis. He does not have the epistemology. He does not have a source, a foundation for what he claims to know. So for the world in general, revelation, God making known is necessary. Top of page two. For the church in particular, God-making known is necessary. The Bible is the source for the doctrines of the Christian faith and the guidelines for living the Christian life. When it's abandoned as, quote, the final authority in all matters of faith and practice, then even the church can develop an anything-goes mentality. Yikes. (laughs) And we are there. 
And if you've had if you've had the difficult time of searching for a church, you know what I'm talking about. Anything goes. But what's really sad is that in our churches, none of them have changed their doctrinal statement. None of them. Many of them have not changed their doctrinal statement. The first article of faith in most of them is still the Bible is God's word and it's the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. But it's one thing to have that on paper. It's another thing for that to actually govern our lives and our churches. Now, dear friend, that means that our church needs to be warned regularly that God's word needs to govern what we do. And then we, all of us, me, you, all of us need to be warned that in our lives we can say we believe God's word. But do we follow its dictates even when it's hard? And this is why you all have heard me say, sometimes through tears, I was just telling somebody the other day, the the hardest thing by far, hands down, the hardest thing for me in pastoral ministry is not for people to struggle with sin. I I, I get that because I struggle with sin. That's not the hardest thing. The hardest thing for me is to see people who know better abandon, just abandon what God says. When my marriage gets tough, I've heard it, I've nodded, I've said amen, but when it gets tough and it affects me, I'm going to walk. And what that means is you really don't believe God's word is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. And if that's the case, if that's the case for us, friends, then let's just say so. Let's stop the charade. Let's stop playing church. Let's just say, I don't believe that. Because if we believe it in all matters of faith and practice, it means whenever it comes into conflict with whatever's going on in your life and my life. All right, so there's the necessity of revelation. And then there's God's provision of it. God has provided by revealing himself, making himself known, both generally and specifically. Revealing himself, making himself known generally is... He's revealed himself through nature, as we saw in our first hour. Through creation, all people were made, are are able to see the power and necessity of the creator. And then secondly, God's revealed himself through man's conscience, as we also saw. An understanding that there are things that are right and wrong. So he's revealed himself generally, that is, general information to a general audience. But then B, he's revealed himself specifically. God's special revelation in the past was accomplished in a number of ways. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1 in your Bible says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. And then we've listed at the bottom of page 2 some of those various ways that God made himself known. But then, top of page 3, Hebrews chapter 1 goes on to say, in fact, we have it for you under number two with the right parent there. You see that? Christ is superior to all other means of special revelation. That verse, we quoted verse one of Hebrews one. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And so God spoke in those ways and God has now spoken through his son. And his son has appointed representatives to pen for us his revelation to us. And that's what B, middle of page 3, is about. Christ spoke through 
the apostles. So the apostles, the 12, then the 11, and then in Acts chapter 1, a replacement, Matthias, is chosen. So they're 12 again. They're a special group of people that Christ specially chose in order to hear and then later record for posterity his instructions to us. That's what we call the New Testament. They were apostles. And they were uniquely chosen. Now, I want you to notice a few things about them quickly and we'll be done. That Christ spoke through the apostles. In that they were uniquely chosen, they were uniquely chosen to seen, and that they were limited in number. They are called in the New Testament, they are called the Twelve. So some of you have heard me say, when you're just called, you're part of just the Twelve, then you're fairly unique. If you're part of a group where people just go, oh, the Twelve said to do this. It's like, wow, those guys are pretty important. And indeed they were. They're limited in number. They're called the Twelve. And in fact, at the end of history, in the New Jerusalem, when the heavenly city is described to John, who wrote the book of Revelation, the dimensions of the city and the walls are given to him. And notice what verse 14 of Revelation 21 says. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So to be an apostle was an exclusive club, very exclusive club. There are no apostles today. And one of the reasons was there were 12, and you can't graffiti your name on the foundation. You can't graffiti the guy on TV's name on. These 12 get on, okay, at the end of history. And we're before that. So we're after the apostles and before this foundation, and yet the names that are going to be on it have already been told to us. They were limited in number, and they were limited by their qualifications. And those verses that are cited there for you are cited to show that one of the qualifications for being considered an apostle who would communicate Christ's revelation in the New Testament to us, one of those qualifications was you had to have been with and seen the risen Christ. So the other reason there aren't any more apostles today is because people don't today see the risen Christ. They were with him. In fact, in Acts chapter 1, when they chose Matthias to be the replacement for Judas, they made that requirement. He had to have been one who has been with us from the very beginning to be a witness of his, his resurrection. And then with that, they were uniquely commissioned. The night before Jesus died, in John chapters 14, 15, and 16, Jesus starts in chapter 14 saying, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. You all remember that. Now, by the way, that's a, that's a quote from Jesus. From Jesus, not Sean Hannity. Really. I mean, when Sean Hannity says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Okay? Because we got a panel coming up. Anyway, let not your hearts be troubled because Jesus is giving the Holy Spirit. That's what he says. Let not your hearts be troubled because I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to talk in that upper room discourse about the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit will do. And he says there, 
He, the Holy Spirit, will lead you into all truth. And he, the Holy Spirit, will bring to your remembrance everything that I've commanded you. Now, how do I know that the Holy Spirit doesn't do that for you and me? Because I forget stuff, and so do you. The reason Jesus gave them the ministry of perfect recall is so they could write the stuff down, which is what they did. And they were commissioned not only to write it and oversee its production, but to authenticate its message by the miracles that they were empowered to do. 2 Corinthians 12.12, the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. The signs of an apostle. If everybody can do these signs, then how do you know an apostle from somebody who's not an apostle? Well, everybody can't do them. Everybody can't do what Peter and John did. Benny Hinn can't do what Peter and John did. Benny Hinn can't do what Peter and John did. Peter and John walk up to a guy at the gates of the temple in Acts chapter 3, and he is begging for alms, and, and Peter says to, them, says to him, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give to you. Rise and walk in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And the guy gets up and walks. Benny can fake that, Benny can't do that. Peter was able to say to a teenage girl, Tabitha, arise. And she rose from the dead. The televangelist can't do that. So they were commissioned to authenticate the message of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us the same thing. The salvation was first announced by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard it. God testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. All right, so God is there and God has spoken. There's the necessity of revelation. Next week, we will look at the fact that he has spoken in writing, in Scripture, and how that has come down to us, okay? Let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for this Lord's Day and the opportunity to worship you and to encourage one another and fellowship together. Father, we ask you to go with us now and help us to apply the things that we have learned from your words. Help us to be doers of your word and not hearers only. And Lord, uh, help us to thank you today and, and every day for giving us the light and the guidance of your word, Lord. And help us to be people who believe it, who live it, who actually carry out what we say we believe, that it is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. Help us to live that so that our message is authentic to those that you have brought into our sphere of influence so that we can give the message of Jesus Christ to them in a credible fashion. Go with us this week. Grant us safety, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.